Research shows us that about 43% of everything that we do on a daily basis is the result of a habit, performing something out of a habit. Now, the ability for us to even develop a habit is, is a gift from God, really. It's, it's part of God's creation. This is actually a gift from Him, a product of what He did at creation. Allowing us to live our lives day in and day out without having to decipher or interpret every tiny little bit of information that comes into our minds second by second. God designed your brain to actually help you out with all of those details. Now, a habit is made up of a cue, which means it's kind of like a flag or a marker. We see something and that's a cue. And that cues your brain to reach into the depths of your mind and pull out a routine and your brain knows when it sees the cue if you pull out the routine do the routine then you're going to get a reward at the end of that and that's the makings of a habit so God designed that for your brain to help you out a habit is made up of a cue a routine and a reward now some habits that we have are good for us and they make our lives easier, and they can make our lives better. But there are some other habits that are actually bad for us. And those habits damage our lives, and they can damage our relationships. And all of these habits, good or bad, they are stored deep in our mind in a part of your brain that's called the basal ganglia. Now, that basal ganglia, where all of this, these habits are stored, the basal ganglia in your mind does not determine whether a habit is good or bad. The basal ganglia in your mind, it does not determine whether the habit is moral or immoral, whether it is right or wrong. Your brain simply asks this question, did we like the reward that we got? And if the answer is yes then your brain simply says, great, then we'll do that again. We'll do it again. Now, that's part of the reason why we have habits, these cues that lead to routines, that lead to rewards. It's part of the reason why we have habits that will actually shorten our lives, like smoking, or a habit that will harm us emotionally, like pornography. Or a habit that can damage us physically, like overwork. A, a habit that can harm our relationships, like lying or cheating or adultery. Once something has become a habit, we have to work really, really hard. Really hard. You know why? Because in a very real sense, that habit has become our master and we have become a slave to that habit. We struggle to fight it. We struggle to stop it. And in many, many instances, we can't stop it. There's more to a habit than just this part of our mind called the basal ganglia. Compared to what scientists know about the rest of our bodies, they really know very little about our minds, about the human brain. Modern scientists, they are just now beginning to understand uh, in very small amounts God's deep science that is related to this creation of his called the brain. 
But what we are learning through all of this are some things that we're going to be able to apply specifically to this series that we're teaching this month on habits and addictions. Think about this. When God created Adam and Eve, how did they know how to survive? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, God didn't give them uh, a manual for the human body. God did not give Adam and Eve a quick start guide to get them going. God didn't give them a seminar on how to understand, how to survive, and how to live. He didn't give them really even a motivational talk. God just simply gave them a few lines. And here's what he said in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. God said, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. And then God tags that with this comment. He says, and don't eat of that tree. You can eat of all the other fruit in the garden. Not that one. Those were the directions. So how did Adam and Eve know how to live? How did they even know how to survive in the garden? How did they know how to multiply, to fill the earth? How did they know how to go get food in order to live? How did Adam and Eve know to pursue sex in order to have babies to populate this world? Science is just now beginning to learn how God took care of that. How God built that into our very brains, our human mind. God created inside of our brain transmitters. These are powerful chemicals that are released by our bodies inside our brains. One of these chemicals is, this is called a neurotransmitter. One of these chemicals is called dopamine. We're going to talk about that for just a couple of minutes. Our brain, God designed this, created it to emit dopamine inside of our mind. And you can think of dopamine, this chemical, like um, a text message to the brain. That's what it's kind of like. So dopamine sends a text message to the brain. The brain reads that text message and then forwards the text message to a group text message throughout other parts of the brain. The other parts of the brain read that text message from the dopamine and then they send their own messages to parts of your body and it, the messages tell your body what to do. Now that's a pretty amazing system. The brain does all of that. And dopamine is a big part of that. So let me give you an example of how this whole dopamine thing works. All right, here, here's kind of how it works. So think with me just a moment. Let's, let's say Adam, because the question is, how did Adam know how to survive? God didn't really give him the instructions. He just said, go, eat. How did Adam know how to eat? How, how did he know how to, to live in the garden? Well, here's how that works. So let's say Adam sees in the distance 
this way, because that way, that's the tree God said don't touch. So this way, let's say Adam sees a pear tree. He doesn't really know what a pear tree is. It's a tree. But his brain gives him a little hit, a little shot of this thing called dopamine, this chemical, this text message. This text message goes to Adam's brain, and here's what the text message tells Adam's brain. It says, Adam, you really need to go check that out. I mean, if you go check that out, there's going to be a reward, some real pleasure over there. You need to go check that out. That's what the dopamine tells Adam. And so Adam is compelled, even though he doesn't really know what that, he's compelled to go check that out, the doubt. And he makes him think, I need to go check that out. So he begins to go check that out. And he starts to head that way. And the closer he gets to the tree, he gets another shot of dopamine. And this time, the text message to his brain says this, you're, you're doing it. You're getting closer. Keep going. You're going to want to keep going, Adam, because, listen, I'm telling you the truth. When you get there, you're going to like what you find. And that dopamine keeps him going. And so he continues. And he continues. Another shot of dopamine. The closer he gets, his body is telling his dopamine is telling his brain, keep going, you're doing it, keep going. You're gonna like the reward. I promise you're gonna like it, you're gonna like it. And he gets it. It keeps him motivated, it keeps him going. He arrives at the tree, he's motivated to pull that pear down, and his body tells him to take a bite, and he does, and then he's like, Wow, you're right. That's amazing. I'm gonna call that a pear. That's great. And his brain's like, you're welcome. I I knew you would like it. I knew it would be a great experience. And because he liked it, because it was rewarding, his brain says, we're going to do that again. And so it plants inside of his basal ganglia a cue. A flag, a marker. And so now he knows what that tree is and what it's like and what it can provide him. So next time, just the mere sight of the tree, he gets a shot of dopamine. And it says, oh yeah, you're going to want that again. You should head that way. And he does. This time, the closer he gets, another shot of dopamine, another shot, because he knows now what it's like. And so the brain has recorded that cue. And the routine is to go get it, and then the reward at the end. God planted inside of Adam and inside of Eve, in their very DNA, the makeup of their body, God planted this whole dopamine-involved system that motivates him to go, that that sends him on his way because he knows that the end is the reward that he will like. In the beginning, he didn't know, but he was motivated to go and investigate. And when it turned out good, then he was motivated to do it again and again. And the dopamine gives him that, that surge, that excitement to go pursue it. Brain says, I told you it was awesome. I knew you'd like it. 
and it records that. That is how we know how to pursue sex, to populate. That's how when with your spouse, that, that's, that's, how, that's how it happened with Adam and Eve. That's how they knew. They, they didn't have a manual. They didn't understand. How do we multiply? How do we populate the earth? God worked it all out with dopamine. That's how we know how to go and drink water. That's how Adam knew it. It was those hits of dopamine that sent him on his way to investigate. And then he got the reward. And his brain said, great, we're going to do that again. Each hit of dopamine that we get in our life, it motivates us towards something that will bring us some kind of reward, some kind of pleasure. And then you remember inside of your mind, you remember the reward. And you're motivated to do that again and again and again as the dopamine hits. You know what the dopamine can be called? It's the go get them because this is going to be good chemical. And it motivates us to go. It's a text message telling your brain, get ready for pleasure. That's going to be good. It's a text message to your brain that motivates you to keep going toward that. It's a text message to your brain to keep you focused so you don't get distracted. Sometimes with like ADHD, some of these attention problems that we can have, sometimes are a problem related to this. Because dopamine helps you focus to get there. It's a text message to your brain. And God created this. Hits of dopamine also work in conjunction with our eyes. Because here's how it works for me. Adam, let's say it was a pear. Uh, I have no dopamine related to a pear in my life at all. For me, it's McDonald's. I can't tell you, our our bookkeeper, the office is just not too far from McDonald's. I can't tell you how many times I get in the car and I drive to the bookkeeper's office and I turn into McDonald's, unplanned. I mean, I make the choice. It's not dopamine's fault, but dopamine gets me all excited about it. Boy, I see those hard, like, oh, yeah, that's where I'm going. That's my pear tree right there, the cheeseburger. And I pull in. I can't tell you how many times I do that. I get that hit of dopamine, that excitement, and I just go in. I don't even have to get out of my car. They hand it to me through the window. But I don't even have to see the building. or the go- I, I, You know what? I, I could see a picture of McDonald's, and the same thing happens. I could be sitting at my desk and see, or I could see a commercial on TV if I, I, I could see it. And I'll have to see that with my eyes, a picture of McDonald's, and the dopamine begins to fire. It's like, oh, that's really good. You know what's at the end of that? Cheeseburgers. And they're good every time. 
Dopamine works in conjunction with your eyes. You don't even have to see the building. You can just see a picture of it. And you know what? It also works in conjunction with your mind and your memories. You don't even have to see a picture because you can pull all of these experiences that you have had that are stored in your mind and you can just imagine it in your mind. And it's just as powerful. You'll get a hit of dopamine and you'll be like, yeah, I really want that. It's powerful. Dopamine works in conjunction with your eyes and it works in conjunction with your memories. All of that stored in the database of your mind. This process I'm talking about with dopamine, it works with food. It works with sex. But it also works with just about any behavior where there is a hope of a reward at the end. It can even, it can even work with exercise. You can get hits of dopamine to go exercise because you know at the end of that, there's that endorphin rush, which is also another neurotransmitter. You can get that hit of dopamine with extreme sports, with something even that's just fun. You can get those hits of dopamine to encourage you to keep pursuing that, even with video games. You can also get it with shopping, even on the internet, shopping. You can get it with gambling and smoking and dipping and eating too much or eating food that's not good for us or drinking too much alcohol or using drug. The list of behaviors goes on and on and on. Those shots, those hits of dopamine that say there's pleasure at the end of that. Keep going. This is amazing to me because what was meant to help you survive in this life. What was meant to help Adam survive in this life, in the Garden of Eden, and what is meant to help you survive. Now, today, since Adam, since Adam and Eve sinned, and and sin entered the DNA of our bodies, dopamine today plays a very different role, a significant part in our lives. Not just for survival in this life. But it plays a very significant role for us pursuing and chasing down things that actually destroy our lives. Pornography causes extraordinary amounts of dopamine to flood your brain. It's released in your brain copious amounts and it creates an intense motivation for you to keep clicking and keep scrolling chasing that elusive pleasure but the same thing can happen with other behaviors if they're left unchecked as a behavior becomes a habit And the habit gets worse, the problem gets deeper. You see, dopamine will begin to work with other chemicals in our brain, in our mind. And parts of the brain begin to make a very lasting change, if not permanent. This begins to change in the front part of your brain. It begins, it works with dopamine and some other chemicals, and it begins with a habit. The brain begins to decide 
and be convinced that something that is a want actually becomes a need. And your brain begins to believe that you must have that. This is a need that must be met. And it must be met in excess. And it must must be met to the exclusion of everything else. And this need must be met to the point that it even damages me physically or emotionally or relationally. But it must be met. And that can happen with any behavior. With shopping and gambling and exercise and drugs and sex and tobacco and alcohol and sugar processed food, cheeseburgers, and french fries. And again, the list goes on and on and on. Everyone wants a hit of dopamine because it promises us a rush of pleasure. So when sin entered our bodies... What God created to sustain our lives got twisted and it got warped into something that can actually potentially destroy our lives. Our very minds fight against our health and they fight against our survival. And this makes the power of habits And addictions, super, super powerful. So what can we do? What can we do if our bodies are fighting against us? Last week we said that freedom is a process. And last week we gave you the first three steps in this series. Let me just quickly tell you what they were. Step one we said is to cry out to God in desperation. Cry out to God and admit to God, I can't stop this. I can't break this, God. I need your help. That was the first step, cry out to God. The second step was to actually believe that he's listening to you, that he cares, and that God will provide. And the third step. We said last week, surrender everything to Him. Take your life and surrender it to His care. Surrender your life to His control. These are the first three steps of actually laying this habit and everything involved with it, laying it down before God. Today we're going to take two more steps. Let me just tell you what they are. We're going to ask you to get honest. And we're going to ask you to go get grace. And there you'll find forgiveness and the beginning of healing. That's where we're going today. So last week we left Moses. This is the story we're using to help us understand this process of a journey towards freedom from slavery. Last week we left Moses at the burning bush where God had told Moses that God heard the cries of the Israel nation. He heard their cries of slavery and, and, and 
brutality. And he said, I'm going to free them. And by the way, Moses, he said, you're going to lead them out for me. You're going to lead them from a nation of slavery to a nation of freedom. Now, don't be fooled. God was going to do all the work. Moses just had to get out in front and kind of follow God and lead the entire nation out. Now, today's step towards freedom is all about honesty. Getting brutally honest with God and with another person about the nitty-gritty details of the sin and the harmful habits in our lives. And we don't like this. To manage our way back from this. Because we want to manage our image. We don't want other people to know how bad it really is. We want to manage what they think of us. I want to manage what you think about me. And you want to manage what I think about you. And we do that with everyone in our lives. We want to manage what they think about us. Now, we might give them a little bit of truth, a shade of the truth, but we're not telling them the whole thing. We're not telling them the real deal. We're just going to give them a little something, something. We hide the rest so that we don't look so bad. We're not brutally honest. We're just a little bit honest. But where there is no brutal honesty, there's never freedom. Because God does not really care anything about improving your image. He wants to improve your life. So here's habit-breaking step number four. Three from last week. Here's number four. Brutal honesty with God leads to forgiveness. Brutal honesty being brutally honest with God our Father, it's going to lead to his forgiveness. And here's how the disciple John wrote that. First John 1, starting with verse 8. He says, if we claim we have no sin. In other words, if we just pretend that everything's okay. If we just brush it aside. If we just practiced image control. No, 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 no. It's really not that bad. I've got it. No, 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 no. Not my problem. That's not me. No. If we practice image control, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves. We're not living in the truth, John says. Verse 9. But if we confess our sins to him. Now this is interesting to me because it's plural. It's not like we say, God, you know what? I've sinned. I admit it. Will you forgive all my sins? That's not what this is talking about. He says, if you confess your sins, if you admit one by one by one, in detail, specifically to God, God, this was a sin. God, this was a sin. This was a sin. I did this. This was a sin. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of those sins. And look, to cleanse us from all wickedness. Brutal honesty with God. It leads to forgiveness every time. And it's not a big mass thing. Forgive me of all the sins. No, it's this one and this one. Oh yeah, too. This one, God, and this one, and this one. Brutal honesty with God. 
Now that's a tough step. It's a tough one. But the next step is tougher. Habit-breaking step number five. Brutal honesty with a trusted Christ follower leads to healing. James 5.16, listen to this. Confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other. So that you may be healed. We hate that verse. We hate that verse. Because we would rather camouflage our sins than confess them to anyone else. Because that's what we've lived our lives doing. That's what we've lived our entire lives doing. Here's a big habit-breaking point. A truth. What we confess to God is forgiven. But what we camouflage to our trusted friend is never freed. You see, this is God's plan. God says, yeah, yeah, forgiveness, I've got you covered. Confess it to me, one by one, everything. Let me know, forgiven. Yep, that one too, forgiven. I got you there too, forgiven. But healing, I've got another plan for that. Let's start your road to healing this way. Tell him. Tell her. I've got you covered on forgiveness. But if you want to move forward to healing, I've got another plan for that. Tell them. Tell that person. This is strong. Now let's go back to Moses. We pick up Moses now in this historical moment where he left the bush and Moses is now standing multiple times before Pharaoh. Moses is standing before Pharaoh as God's ambassador. So on one side we have Pharaoh who sees himself as a god. Pharaoh who is fighting to keep power and control. That's Pharaoh. He wants power and control of all of his image. I'm going to keep control of my image, Pharaoh. Then on the other side, we have God. The one true God. Pharaoh just thinks he's God. Over here we have God. On one side, we have evil with lies and dishonesty and misdirection. That's Pharaoh. On this side over here, we have God, truth, and honesty. On one side, we have slavery. On one side, we have freedom. This is the showdown. And God starts things off slowly. He's allowing Pharaoh to think, yeah, I really am something. Yeah, maybe I, I, really, I, really, I really am something. I'm the God of this nation here. I'm, I'm the master of all of these slaves. Yeah, I really am something. He lets Pharaoh think that he really can control things. And so here's what happens. God sends in two little measly plagues. Here's the first one. 
The first one was blood. And he knows Pharaoh's going to match that. His magicians come out and he matches that, that plague. So Pharaoh thinks, oh, I'm pretty good at this being God thing. Controlling my image and all. God sends in the second one. Frogs. Second plague. Frogs. Pharaoh's magicians match that one too. God knew this. Part of the plan. God now begins to turn up the heat. God begins to separate himself from Pharaoh. And God begins to separate himself from the magicians. And God sends in something we're a little familiar with here. Not to this degree, but a little bit. He sends in the mosquitoes and the stinging gnats. To a degree far beyond what we have ever seen in Stuttgart. He sends those in. They can't match it. By the sixth plague, the boils. You don't hear from the magicians again. And now the showdown is just God and Pharaoh. And the next three plagues dominate Pharaoh. And according to God's plan, the final plague crushes Pharaoh. And yet in all of that... Pharaoh was never brutally honest with God. Pharaoh was never brutally honest with anyone. And the final plague that God brings down, let me give you a snapshot of just part of the picture. Exodus chapter 12, starting with verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals. He had told them to find a perfect uh, lamb without any blemish. He said, select the animals for your families. Every family had one. And slaughter this Passover lamb. Verse 22. Take a, a bunch of hyssop. And so they take these branches, they dip it, into the blood. So they take the blood from this sacrificed lamb and they, they gather it in a basin. They take these branches, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on top and on both sides of the doorframe. So they're painting the doorframe with the blood from this sacrificed lamb. And here's what Moses says. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. In other words, once you get the blood on your doorpost, stay in the house. Stay covered by the blood of the lamb. Don't leave. Stay under the blood of the lamb. Verse 23. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe, and he will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and to strike you down. You see what's happening here? The Israelites were saved by the blood of the Lamb covering their homes and my friends today we are saved by the blood of the lamb 
covering our lives. Because that is where we find forgiveness. The blood of our lamb. Perfect. Without a blemish. That means he's sinless. It was no accident but a prophetic word. When John the baptizer saw Jesus for the first time walking toward him. And John said look. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Our lamb, whose blood will cover our lives if we allow. And it was no accident that John the disciple wrote these words. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful And he is just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. Because of the blood of the Lamb, we have forgiveness. And our message is clear, I hope today. May we stop deceiving ourselves. May we stop defeating ourselves. God's forgiveness is waiting for you. You are not too bad to be forgiven. But my friends, you can be too late. But if you are still breathing right now, If you have any life left in you at all, you are not too late yet. Please, don't wait any longer. This morning, we're going to lose some folks. We're going to lose some people today. I mean, you're not going to leave the church. But we're going to lose... The next step that we're asking you to take. This is not a big step. No, it's not a big step. It's clear and it's simple. But this is perhaps the toughest step we have ever asked you to take on a Sunday. This is a tough one. Because we have spent most of our lives with damage control. Just living day by day. Doing image damage control. But if you want freedom, this is a step that can't be skipped. And God's word is clear. We either admit this now or we will pay for it later. So here's today's step in two parts. Part one. You leave here today, we're going to ask you to get a piece of paper or to get a three ring binder with a lot of pages and write down everything. Write them all down, all your sins, all your bad habits, write them down. Just list them one right after the other. Be very specific, brutally honest. Write it down, everything, and admit those things one by one as you put them on paper. Admit them to God. God, that was wrong. That was sin. I admit to you. I agree with you. That was sin. Will you forgive me? 
And guess what? Receive His forgiveness. That's part one. Part two is to find a very trusted Christ-following friend and admit that list. Take that list, that same list, and admit it to them item by item by item. Admit it to them. Now listen. You, you can just tell them. I, I, you don't have to tell me anything. Just listen. God tells me this is part of my healing. Just listen. Item by item by item. And then have them pray for you. This is a big step. Okay, asking God for forgiveness. Yeah, I mean, that makes that sound easy, doesn't it? But telling someone else, because now they're going to know that we don't have it all together, that we have blown it in some ways that they never even imagined. But God says, I'll forgive you. Just tell me, ask, admit it. But if you want healing, I've got another plan for that. He says, talk to them. We're going to have this week's teaching uploaded, I hope, by Tuesday because some of us are going to need to listen to this two or three, maybe four times to have the courage and the motivation to be able to write that list, ask forgiveness from God, and then to share it with a trusted friend, Christ-following friend. And if you don't have a trusted Christ-following friend right now, and you may not, keep coming. Stay here long enough. Get into our small groups, and eventually you will find one. But until then, if you don't have one right now, then I encourage you to get in your car, drive to the nearest town or even to Little Rock. Find a church that teaches Jesus. If there's cars in the parking lot, pull in. Ask to speak with the pastor or a pastor, a minister. And just say, I have a prayer request. And take your list. Just tell them you don't have to tell me anything. I just need to share this with you. Because God says it's part of my healing. And I need you to pray for me. And share your list. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the relief of not hiding anymore? Can you imagine the step of peace of not having to fight so hard to control your image and what others think of you? Can you imagine the deep breath of healing that can begin when life's camouflage is gone and it's replaced by forgiveness and it's replaced by these beginning steps of peace? And if you take these two steps, my friend, you will be deep onto the path out, the path towards freedom. You're on that path now. 
together. Let's lay this all down at God's feet. Let's pray. God, so often we are trapped by habits. These simple habits started in freedom. God, we, we had control over them. We started them. We were the master over something, but something happened. Something went wrong, and it became our master. We became the slaves. God, we've tried to quit. Sometimes we would quit for a while, but it came back and it conquered us again. God, give us the courage to confess everything to you with brutal honesty. And we can do that because you told us that if we confess our sins to you, you are faithful and you are just to forgive us of our sins and not just forgive, but to cleanse us from all, all wickedness. God, give us the courage to quit surviving this life on image control and to help us confide these very same details to a trusted Christ-following friend because their God, you said, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Jesus, you truly are the Lamb of God that died to take away the sins of the world. And God, those sins include my vast, specific world of sin. Thank you for forgiveness, Jesus. Amen.